equity is a word we often hear but know very little about. And the difference between equity and equality is something that needs to be at the forefront of our conversations. But how do we achieve equity? How do we make sure the environments that we are in are equitable and just? My guest today, Tara J. Frank, explores this question in detail in her new book, The Waymakers, and uses her experience as a woman of color to show us exactly how to do just that. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you got something to say that is on your mind. We need to talk, we need to talk about it. You know just one conversation can change your life. We need to talk, we need to talk about it. We need to talk. Tara, thank you so much for being on We Need to Talk today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Congratulations on your new book, The Waymakers. I'm very excited to chat with you about it. I am excited too. It has uh, been a whirlwind, as you can imagine. Oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. I just love that you are in the DEI space because we need more people like you speaking out about it, but also helping to guide others. But I want to know what about your journey, having worked in the corporate world, really led you down this path? And has it been a rewarding experience for you so far? Yeah, so this is a a really good question. And honestly, a, a much bigger question than you probably realize, but I'll try to be succinct. Uh, You know, I started my career as a greeting card writer. I bring this up to say that my entire career, I have cared about, been interested in, and actually been responsible for better understanding human motivation and behavior, Hmm. better understanding what builds bridges between people, right? What deepens relationships, uh, what repairs relationships, And so when I reflect back on my career, it's interesting to realize that that very first job I had was a bit of a seed that was planted. In the years after that, I became vice president of creative writing and editorial, which was a very strategic job, right? Kind of understanding generally how we needed to approach the business with consideration for how America's demographics were changing and evolving. Um, I focused a lot on just marketplace needs, those consumer needs, and also Mm -hmm. uh, retail, how to go to market, et cetera. My last job in corporate was as corporate culture advisor uh, to the president and the CEO, which followed um, a stint where I essentially designed and stood up a multicultural center of excellence. So my history has a lot baked into it, right? One humans, human being, peopling (laughs) is a big part of what I've always done. Um, Understanding, again, the marketplace in a really nuanced uh, human way, Um, working with business leaders, right, to bring new solutions to market. I have an innovation mastery. I'm a product developer. All of that feeds into the work I do today because how I approach my work is one, let's understand what people need and why they need it what they may need that they can't even yet articulate. Um, Let's kind of ideate and think about what potential solutions might be. Um, Let's put those solutions into place or experiment with them and then figure out how we're going to measure whether or not we're successful. And I take that approach to my work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. You know, as you were talking, I, I was thinking, is it ever uncomfortable for you as a woman of color having to teach people 
to include you in a system that was never made for you to be a part of in the first place? Yes, it has been in the past. What I will tell you is I had to kind of shift my own uh, mindset, right? My own internal paradigm when it comes to this work. So when I first began my consulting company, I started in leadership development. I was basically trying to help individual leaders build their own uh, capacity to lead. And then I kind of realized that I was focusing on the vine, right? Like making the vine strong. And it became really clear to me very quickly because I've experienced this through other lenses that if the soil is dry, if the vineyard is dry, right, not nourishing, nurturing, the vine will not thrive. So I ended up flipping from individual leadership development to culture work, right, mm-hmm. to culture work. So what I will say is recognizing that there are entities, leaders, etc., who don't necessarily want their organizations or their teams to be more diverse, to be more equitable, to be more inclusive, Um, has helped me take the emotion out of it. Mm. You know, when I first went into it, I was very, um, I'm always optimistic. You can't do this work without optimism. For sure. But I was just really open-hearted, open-minded, thinking everybody wants to do this and wants to, you know, do the the right thing. Um, I put quotes around that. I have since discovered clearly that that's not true of everyone. And so embracing that as a fact has taken the emotion out of it for me. And and I've learned not to work with people who aren't serious about doing the work well. So I protect myself in that way too. Yeah. Where do you think though the resistance towards diversity, equity, and inclusion comes from? I mean, we could probably talk about this for an hour, but just for you being, you know, in the field, doing this work, working with corporations, working with people, what has kind of been a common denominator for why people resist it? People are afraid of losing something. Hmm. You know, this work is very, I always go back to psychology, to be honest with you. I'm not a psychologist, but I just go back to human, again, motivation and behavior. When you have enjoyed power and position your whole entire life and people start talking about equity, which folks have increasingly um, started to define as some kind of unfair you know, taking this away from you to give it to someone else. um, They're afraid. They're afraid of losing something. They're afraid of losing their power, their position, their ability to be first and best. And I also think, and I talk about this in The Waymakers, that people are afraid of losing their idea of who they are. Many people, whether they're conscious of it or not, um, are deeply rooted in their whiteness. They don't think about it that way. Mm but their entire life, they have been pushed to the front um, in many instances, and they have been protected, and they have been seen, and they have been respected, and they have been valued. And so when we start talking about equity, and and some folks are kind of successfully, I think, making it a a boogeyman of sorts, um, they start to worry that they won't be seen any longer. They won't be respected any longer or valued or protected any longer. And who would want to lose that if you've enjoyed it your entire life? Oh, for sure. <laughs> right. Right. And me, and that's where the privilege comes in. That's that, exactly right. You know, that's exactly what the privilege is. You've enjoyed it your entire life. Yeah. And, it must be nice. 
<laughs> right, right, that part. So when you, you're talking about definitions a little earlier, I know that a lot of people do not know what the difference between equity and equality is. So could you explain the difference between those two terms? Yeah, so it's one of those things that you sometimes, it's hard to define it without using the word to define it. But here's how I right, think about right. it. <laughs> I think about equality as giving everyone the same thing. I think about equity as understanding that not everyone has access or opportunity to enjoy and benefit from the same thing. Mm. So my example is if I'm in my house and I make a buffet, you know, a dinner buffet, and I put all of it out on the table, anybody can come get any part of this buffet. You all, it's, it's equal. It's all out there for, for everybody. What we don't realize or fully appreciate is some people are still on the porch. (laughs) They're not even in the kitchen to be able to see the buffet. Never mind actually put something on their plate and eat it. They didn't hear the announcement that the buffet is ready. They didn't hear the announcement (laughs) that the buffet is available. Oh, and wait, some of them might be vegan and they Mm -hmm. can't eat everything that is on the buffet, right? I mean, these are the kinds of this is it's a silly example perhaps but i think an easy one to understand that just because Absolutely. you put something out there doesn't mean that everyone can benefit from it or access it equitably and Absolutely. so equity t- is includes having consideration for the ways that we don't know can't access can't benefit right from what we believe we are giving people equally We talked a little bit about, you know, people being afraid that something would be taken away from them. But have you had positive experiences where people are really wanting to make a difference and have the environments that they work in be more equitable for everybody? I I absolutely have. And thank God, because I don't know how long, you know, I could last in this work, quite honestly, if there weren't these glimmers of hope. Right, it's right. hard work. It's taxing work. It's not just about strategy and theory and systems. It's change management, essentially. You're trying to help people who didn't necessarily grow up with a lens for difference, with a lens for the needs of people who are not like them. You're trying to give them that lens. You're trying to help them understand how having that lens is beneficial to them and to their companies. And that is is a major change for many people. So I approach all of my work um, with a, you know, a human centric approach, honestly. I I back up from it because we, sometimes when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I believe we make it too theoretical. We talk about it like, it's just kind of this ball of a lot of practices and processes, you know, and systems and it exists apart from us, and we need to figure out how to go on and grab it and then bring it down to earth and put it in the ground and watch everything sprout. Right. Yes, it's systems. Yes, it's practices. But it's also people implement systems. People abide by practices. People right, benefit from systems and practices. So my work, you know, and why The Waymakers is written the way it is, is to invite leaders with a heart to lead into the equity arena and equip them, right, with the tools they need, the insights they need, 
and in an understanding of new choices they can make, new behaviors they can exhibit to create the kind of climate where every single person can thrive. So I try to make it real for people because so much of it is really relational and we don't yeah. give that, I think, enough focus. Are there specific environments that you've worked in and consulted in that you've seen the most success with DEI training? You know, it's all different, honestly. I can't necessarily say this environment versus this environment. Look, I've done work with nonprofits who get it and are like, let's do it. And I've Mm -hmm. worked with nonprofits who don't. I've worked with sports organizations who are ready and willing. I've worked with sports organizations who are not. I've worked with Fortune 500 yeah. <laughs> corporations, right? Like it's it's, it's not based on really people there. an environment thing. That's exactly right. It's based yeah. on the people there. Back, back to the heart of the matter. You know, I, I do appreciate how much DEI is coming into the conversation lately, but I guess, and maybe it's because I'm younger, not that I'm saying that you're older, but I, I didn't I am know. I a, a little older than you. <laughs> but but I didn't know, like, that it was such a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that it is. But in your experience, do you feel like these conversations were happening, you know, when you were at Hallmark, for example, or is it really just being pushed to the forefront now, you know, due to social media, due to, I mean, more awareness, which I'm appreciative of, but I'm wondering when you started to see the shift of this being more at the forefront of the conversation? Well, I will tell you, and I will go on and age myself uh, (laughs) for the purposes of explaining clearly. So when I started in corporate, um, it was 27-ish years ago. We we were just coming off of affirmative action kind of actions that had been put into place, right? So companies were Um, making some targeted decisions about who they were going to hire and how, uh, who they were going to set up for opportunity. Um, Diversity was a focus and people were trying to implement things, you know, systems, choices, et cetera, that were going to benefit people who maybe had been left behind. Now, they did it inelegantly. There were some real problems with how we did it, but it was an area of focus at the time. Well, then we kind of got into this wave where people are like, oh, we fixed it. We don't have to do that anymore. And then everybody took their eye off of those balls. And we said, we're not going to do these programs anymore. They're not fair. We need to make sure that we have opportunity for everybody. Another way to say our white people need the same things that, right. We took our eye off that ball because we felt like it, it wasn't necessary. And then there was a lot of uh, sliding backwards you know, that happened. And so it's been a little bit, I think, of a rise and fall. Now what's happening is we're having conversations we never had at work. Like when I was coming up in corporate, there are three things you didn't talk about, uh, religion, politics, and race. Hmm. You didn't talk about those things. And so because this whole idea of using the, you know, playing the race card was kind of weaponized against you. If you felt that you were experiencing racism on every le- on any level, you had to find other ways to describe it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to go yeah. find other words yeah. and phrases to say yeah. what you already knew you wanted to say. And now we are talking about race at work. That is very different. That is very yeah. new. Um, and we're quite frankly, pretty clumsy at it. And, and I think that's part of this journey forward is, is knowing and recognizing that there are a lot of people 
who have never really had a meaningful conversation about race, who didn't grow up with people um, who are not, you know, white like them. Um, and this is a little bit of a new conversation for them relative to, to their lifetime. I think it's also, at least in my experience, it is more ignorance, mm -hmm. at least from what I've seen, as opposed to just just implicit bias. I mean, I think we can fall into that category as well, but it's just saying, you know, not having those conversations, not being exposed to people that don't look like you, not even knowing that it's an issue. Mm -hmm. And I and I do have a little bit of grace and empathy for people that are more on, on that side because they really just don't know. And I love the work that you're doing because you're giving people the opportunity to ask questions and to just be aware. And I think that we do need to have more environments like that. Yeah, I I agree. You know, we don't get to a new place unless we create a little bit of that grace and space for people to yeah. learn their way forward. You know, I, I recently did an interview where I said, hey, the reason I wrote this book, one of the reasons I wrote it and why I wrote it the way I did was I was in these rooms with high level leaders and many of them had three things in common, right? They wanted to do the right thing. Two, they didn't know exactly what the right thing was. And three, they felt unsure about how to step into it. And people ask yeah. me all the time, and it's a fair question, do you actually believe they didn't know what to do? And I say, no, I know they didn't know what to do. I was there. <laughs> right. like, I, you yeah. know, I'm yeah. in the conversation with them. I wasn't observing from a distance. I know they didn't know what to do. And it, it goes back to what you were saying. They didn't have the exposure and quite frankly, they didn't have to do anything about it for so that many part. years. Like yep. it, they were not compelled to, to and learn And it wasn't more. required of them. Exactly. It was never yeah. required of them. And now because of Generation Z, because of, you know, younger millennials, because of social media, they are required to, yeah. to know more about this conversation and the impact of race um, and quite frankly, other dimensions of difference on their colleagues and on their employees. And it is a new walk for them. It is not a new walk for us, but it is a new walk for them. And we have choices as far as I'm concerned, those of us in DE and I, we can say, you know, you go figure out the path. And then once you get there, we'll do some work together. Or we can say, you want to go down this path? but you don't know how fast you should go, exactly where you should go or what you should take with you. Okay, let me come alongside you and let's make this happen. Yeah. I have chosen the latter. Not everybody does and I understand why because it can be exhausting, but I have personally chosen the latter. I think that's such an important point to make going back to they haven't been required yeah. to know, but we as people of color, always have had to know what right. was considered the standard, what is considered professionalism, I mean, going into standards of beauty, yep. how dress, whatever whiteness has been elevated as, we yep. have had to know in order to function. And I even had a conversation with somebody, a black male, and he was like, I have to know a white person in my everyday. Yes. I have to, Yeah, to get through anything. They don't have to know people of color to, to get through life. But now that it is being required of them, to me, I just think it's going to make their lives that much better <laughs> if they oh, take the time. Undoubtedly. To, you know what I mean? Right. Undoubtedly. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting because relearning things as an adult is way more difficult than if you had that exposure as a kid. 
Yes. Because you just grow up around it and that's natural. That's why I always say when it comes to talking about race and inclusion and love and just being diverse, it starts with a young child. You have to expose them at a young age. Otherwise, they get to be 30. They're in the corporate world and they're like, wait, I have to learn what? This is what it's. Well, and to add to that, at that age, it's not just about the fact that learning something in this in this way is harder but you also have to unlearn yeah so if you learn it when you're young right you learn it more organically and naturally and that exposure helps to shape your worldview but by the time you're 30 and 40 and some of them quite honestly are learning for the first time at 50 and 60 believe it or not it's also about what you have to dismantle in your own mind and heart about some of these issues and the deconstructing process is really messy and difficult and time consuming. And exhausting. Exhausting. <laughs> for, for everybody. For everybody involved. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. So in your work, how do you help and, and get away from marginalized people feeling almost tokenized mm-hmm. um, for the sake of diversity and inclusion? Because I think it's this kind of this difficult catch 22, where as a person of color, you want to just be given the opportunity to prove that you have the skill set, that you deserve to have a specific job or you should be chosen, but you don't want to be chosen just because you're a person of color to fit kind of a quota for diversity and inclusion. So how have you managed to find that balance of not margin, uh, not um, making them feel tokenized, but also making sure people get the opportunities that they deserve? This is such a brilliant question. I'm, I'm not sure you fully appreciate how brilliant it is. Oh, and it is you. a very complex issue. So if you don't mind, I'm going to share a couple anecdotes with you that I think might help bring this to life. Absolutely. When I was 28, 29, I knew I was being considered for an executive leadership position. At the time at Hallmark, I was the youngest person to be promoted into executive leadership in the company's history at this time, at, at 28, 29. I knew I was being considered. I was the only Black person in that division at the middle management level, you know, at the time, um, I was really nervous that when they gave me the job, my peers, many of whom had been there way longer than I, and some of them had even been in leadership in that division longer than I had been alive. Hmm. (laughs) I knew, or I believed they were going to question why me. And so I had a conversation with the highest ranking black person in the company at the time. And I told him that I was afraid of this. I said, you know, I don't think, what if they don't believe that I deserve it? What if they think I'm only getting this job because I'm black and and all of this? And he said to me, you have to realize that people are going to think what they want to think about why you got the position. But once you get the position, regardless of why, your job is to prove to every single person that you were the right choice. Mm. I think back on that now, and that burden of proof is something I talk about a lot today. Like it's a burden that you feel you have to prove you're worthy of, of the opportunities that you have earned, that you deserve, that you were smart enough for and capable enough for. But at the time, I think what he was trying to say is don't get caught up 
and what other people think about why you get opportunities. Yeah. Once you get that opportunity, just do good work. Yeah. Right? Like inhabit it, you know, lean into it, do good work, make an impact, um, and the noise will fall away in time. So as hard as that can be, because we do think about that, of course. we have to figure out what story we're going to tell ourselves about our own professional experience. Um, you know, it's true that if you have a thought repeatedly, it becomes a belief. When you believe something that brings up emotion in you, when that emotion comes up in you, if you're not careful, sometimes you behave out of that emotion and you can actually influence a negative result. So if I'm telling myself every day, well, people are going to think I don't deserve this. People are going to think I don't deserve this. People are going to, they're tokenizing me. That's going to yeah. make me feel what? Frustrated and yeah. marginalized and invisible and sad even and disappointed. And if I'm feeling all those things moving through my every day, I'm going to behave in ways that might actually make my life harder versus just saying, here yeah. I am. However I got here or however people think I got here is none of my business. <laughs> but right. here I am. Let's, let's yeah. go. It is hard. It's hard to to shift your mindset in that way, yeah. especially in our position, you know, because there are so many times when I achieve something or if I don't even want to share it because I'm worried yeah. that how people are going to view it. And that's that's such a shame. And I know so many other people of color that feel like they can't even be proud of an accomplishment because they're worried of what the quote unquote backlash is going to be in regards to them achieving that accolade. I would also say to that point, we have to be really mindful and intentional about who we surround ourselves with. Mm -hmm. I will tell you this book, you know, came out um, recently and I, it is very clear to me that there is a circle, right? Of women, black women, yes, but not just black women who are rooting for me, who are creating, mm -hmm. if you will, a little bit of a buffer around me, right? reminding me to celebrate and to feel proud of this accomplishment and that all the good things that are happening are deserved. And that kind of song in your ear when you are winning <laughs> is yes. crucial, right? Yes. To your own emotional well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Who you surround yourself with is very, very important to your success and your happiness, your mental health, all of mm -hmm. it. Couldn't agree more. But what I was going to say is that, and, and I talked about this a little bit before, but there's this catch-22 of people telling you as people of color, oh, everything's equal. All you have to do is work hard to get where you want to be. Then you do the work, you get to where you want to be. And then the only reason you got there was because you're a person of color. So it's like there's no scenario. <laughs> There's just no scenario where we actually got something because we deserved it and worked hard. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling to me, honestly. Yeah. And, and that's why I say that the most powerful thing you can do is figure out what story you're going to commit to. Yeah. What belief you want to commit to, because if we are impacted emotionally all the time, which it's human to be, but by other people's opinions and assumptions of us, um, you know, that is a really rocky ride. Yeah. Not only when it comes to success, but in life in general, that is a really rocky ride. And the sooner we learn, especially as black women, to be honest, that 
we are our own worst critics sometimes. Um, we can be amplifiers to people's uh, opinions of us. Mm-hmm, <laughs> we mm-hmm. can it, amplify their opinions of us, right? If they think yes. that, we're, that we're amazing, we feel so, so, so amazing. If they think we're terrible, we feel so, so, so terrible. Um, but, you know, uh, accessing that internal knowing uh, is just crucial. It's crucial. Yeah. And in committing to your very best idea of who you are and can be, um, I think is the way forward. Because everybody's going to have something to say. Yeah. Especially now. Oh, my God. <laughs> everybody has something to say about everything. You got two thumbs and an opinion, then you're, yeah. Right. <laughs> and any social media app, that's all you need. You can to ruin a life. Opinion. You can ruin Absolute, a life. Yes. Yeah. Without ever touching anyone. Without ever knowing <sighs> them. Isn't that wild? That's where we are. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Well, let's talk about your new book, The Waymakers. I have been um, thoroughly enjoying it and consuming it. And it's all about workplace equity, but without giving away too much, because I definitely want everybody to go out and purchase it and support you and read it. What is the first step that people can take in order to be a waymaker in creating a more equitable workplace? I think it's really important that especially leaders, but everyone uh, take a good long look in the mirror. <laughs> so I talk about this in the book, you know, if you are leading a division or a company, getting an honest sense of what your employees are actually experiencing day to day is really important. People mm-hmm. ask me all the time, what are other companies doing? What is best practice? And I always say, I can tell you that, but what they're doing may not be what you should do. So until you deeply understand what your current state is, right, either as an individual or as a leader of a team, you won't have a good sense of where you should go from here. So to me, it's that look in the mirror. Who am I? What do I believe? What have my experiences been to date if I'm just one person? Or what are my people experiencing? What is the good and the bad of it Um, is really the first step in figuring out where you go uh, from here on out. I think emotionally, this is very much about humility. Like we cannot believe we know enough. Uh, We've always done the right thing. You know, we can't always trust our intuition or our instincts because our intuition is shaped by our experiences. And many times our experiences are narrow um, and one dimensional. And so being open to the learning journey, to the learning process, to other people's points of view uh, is also a really important part uh, of this walk forward. Yes, speaking on the humility aspect of it, have you seen, and specifically white people, because they're typically ones in positions of power and with privilege, have you seen them kind of reconcile with the fact that they are born with privilege and when they are in a position to be a way maker that they have to use that privilege for good? I have. I I have. Now, as often as I want to, maybe not. Right, right. But I absolutely have seen that. I have seen people come into the realization that there are things they have not had to deal with because they are white, right? That they don't necessarily have a drag on them. That's how I describe it in the book. Like there are people in this world who essentially have had to move through the workplace um, with 
you know, an anchor attached to their ankles, like just <laughs> dragging along, you know, so many headwinds, so many challenges yeah. and a feeling of isolation often. So not only am I pushing, you know, against, do I have resistance, but I'm also trying to do this by myself as the only one or one of very few. And it's a, it's a really heavy emotional burden uh, for people to carry. And I don't think everyone fully appreciates that. But when they are interested enough and seek to appreciate it, I have seen people shift. While you were writing this book, was there anything that you personally learned or became aware of or were surprised by in all the research that you were doing? Yeah, it really, I will say, I knew people were tentative about leading more equitably and inclusively. Like I knew they were tentative, mm. but I didn't know how paralyzed some people really were. Wow. Because I think what we, what we believe, and I referenced this a little bit earlier, is that those who have achieved really high levels of professional success, we believe they can figure anything out. We're like, if you, you know, knew enough and, and were determined enough to become a, a C-suite leader, let's say, there's no way this could be that hard for you. But it really is that hard for some people because you know why? This is a difficult thing to get wrong. Yeah. It is a very personal, emotional thing to get wrong, especially if you see yourself as a caring person. If you see yourself as a good person, the notion of stepping into something, of offending or insulting or somehow disenfranchising someone because of something you didn't think about or didn't know um, is really unsettling and it creates a sort of paralysis. So while I knew people were tentative, I didn't know so many people were paralyzed. That's interesting. That's very, very interesting. So when you did realize that and with those people, was there ever a sense of victimhood from them? Uh, that's a good question. I didn't necessarily experience that often or on a, mm -hmm. you know, in a broad way. Sure, there are some people who get defensive, mm -hmm. which manifests as victimhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they feel, you know, Dr. Angelo, I worked with Dr. Maya Angelo for about a decade when I was at Hallmark and she had this one quote that was in one of her books and she used to say it sometimes too, which is basically if you throw a stone into a pack of wolves, the one who yelped got hit. Of course, the shorthand for that is a hit dog will holler. Yeah. But sometimes when you talk about these issues and people would respond, you know, really defensively, well, what about me? Well, I, this was the most common one. Well, I don't have privilege, privilege. I grew up poor or we didn't have a lot of money, you know, those kinds of things. Of course. I recognize that for what it is. And what it is, is people have a really hard time sitting with the idea of privilege because it isn't anything they ask for. They're like, I didn't have any control over the fact that I have this privilege. You're making me feel ashamed for it, but I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. And so I don't want to carry a sense of shame associated with it because it's not my fault that I have it. And so it's hard for people, I think, to embrace that idea when they don't feel like they did anything, right? For to, sure. to kind of find themselves in that position. So yes, that is a very human reaction. Mm -hmm. I, I see it for what it is. I never overreact to it. 
I just really try to help people maybe see the scenario through uh, another lens. Yeah. Well, you also didn't have the privilege of overreacting. <laughs> right. True. <laughs> I do. They can well, fire me. But. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we don't want that. We don't yeah. want that. Well, Tara, thank you so much for joining me. And again, as I said before, I'm really enjoying your book. Can you let everybody know where they can follow you and where they can purchase your book, The Waymakers? For sure. Thank you for asking. I am on LinkedIn uh, under Tara J. Frank. I'm very active on LinkedIn. It's where I share most of my good best thoughts. <laughs> um, but I'm also on Instagram at Tara J. Frank, uh, on Twitter at Tara Initial J. Frank. Um, the book, honestly, it's everywhere books are sold, but I'm really asking people to buy it on Amazon right now. There are <laughs> reasons for that, right? When you newly release a book, it's super helpful yes, of course. Um, of for course. people to get it there. That that dang algorithm, you, you know. Um, oh, but yes. yeah, it's anywhere books are sold, but Amazon is preferable. Thank you again for sharing all of your thoughts. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. And it's wonderful to spend this time with you. And to the listeners, thank you so much for supporting We Need to Talk each week. Make sure you rate, comment, like, and subscribe. Follow us on all of our social media channels and Instagram and Facebook at We Need to Talk the Podcast. And a huge shout out to Stephen James, our theme song writer and producer. Remember, everything begins with a conversation. We need to talk.